What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. On January 1st, 2009, Oscar Grant III was executed on the Fruitvale BART platform in Oakland, California. What resulted was a protracted struggle for justice in the streets of Oakland and Los Angeles, which reverberated around the globe, including in Arab countries like Egypt, where freedom fighters during Arab Spring held up signs that said, I am Oscar Grant, and Palestine, where resistors there provided Oakland protesters with solidarity and tools to engage in what was a literal war with the state in the streets. Following 2009, Oakland and the Bay Area at large continued to protest state violence both locally and across the globe almost weekly and in the thousands, as many of my listeners likely remember. This resistance led directly to the 2013 formation of Black Lives Matter and kicked off this iteration of the fight against state violence across the globe, including the emergence of organizations like BYP 100 and the Movement for Black Lives. Our guest this morning is Christopher Paul Harris, an assistant professor of global and international studies at the University of California, Irvine. His book that we are discussing today is To Build a Black Future, The Radical Politics of Joy, Pain and Care. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kat. Happy to be here. Christopher, you start the book with the Millions March in December of 2014. I was one of the organizers for that march here in Oakland and was immediately taken back to that day with thousands of us in the streets that demand that Black folks be in front and our allies and accomplices you know, filing in behind. And I'm wondering if you would take my listeners through your experience of that day and what, from your perspective, the boil over was that got the country to that point. Uh, yeah, well, it's it's really funny to to think about in retrospect because I went to that march prior to actually starting uh, the research that would culminate in my dissertation and then later become the book. So at the moment, I I hadn't really been activated, right? And that march itself was an activating moment, even though it would be a couple of years before I actually joined uh, a movement organization in the Black Beef Project 100, BYP 100. Uh, I think that moment in late 2014 was such a watershed precisely because of the accumulation of violations against Black people that had occurred at that time. And as we know, since then, it's become... Oh, well, since then, it, 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 it just increased, right? But, but I think in New York in particular, where I was, at Eric Garner, you had Akai Gurley, all, all of these moments kind of happening right after each other. And then there was earlier, there was a Mike Brown, and before that, Trayvon Martin, and as you mentioned, um, uh, Oscar Grant, but kind of preceding all of this. So I think the sheer accumulation of violations, as I said, was was really what made that moment a, a, a watershed in the movement. I think you kind of answered this, but I'm going to ask it anyway, tug on the thread a little bit more. When you set off to write this book, what was the tug in your gut? What questions did you want to answer or explore? But I guess it, it sounds like actually you set out to write a dissertation paper, and then that led to the book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the dissertation, the angle of the dissertation was was quite different than 
what it ended up being in the end and then you know what carried forth with the book so i was originally interested in a generational politics which is to say i was interested in how my generation um, american millennials in particular people born between say 1981 and 1996 how we were viewing politics the sort of social transformations that we wanted to see uh, relative to those that came before so i was asking myself that question across several different spaces um, social justice movements being just one of them. But when I actually entered movement space and you know, uh, Black Youth Project 100 uh, fits into this kind of generational paradigm because uh, the organization is a membership-based organization for Black people between the ages of 18 and 35. So they themselves were, uh, were claiming you know, a kind of a, a generational mandate. Right? So that's what kind of brought me to them. But when I actually entered the space, and it had been the first time that I had in a long time been in a Black-only space with similarly positioned and aged, you know, Black folks. Uh, and the more involved I got in the organization, the more I realized that the question wasn't really simply about generational politics in a broad sense. It was really about Black politics and Black generational politics and what Black folks around my age wanted and were striving for. Uh, and, you know, I really can't, um, you know, overstate how powerful it was for me to to kind of enter that space and become involved in that space. It itself was, I think, a radicalizing in, encounter in ways that I didn't expect. And and I'm actually I'm going to ask you to overstate because even before you entered that movement space, right, Chris, you were a black man in America, right, and clearly aware of all of the things that that means and experiencing all of the things that that means. And can you talk a little bit about the emotional part of being radicalized, which I I know for a lot of black folks, right, equals an empowerment that they hadn't felt previously in this country. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so prior to, to to entering the space, obviously, as you as you say, there uh, uh, was experiencing, you know, the hypervisibility of black death in a very visceral way. And I remember uh, traveling. I forget where I was in the world. I might have been kind of randomly in in Jordan with an, with an ex partner of mine uh, when the uh, Killing in the—I'm um, going to forget the name of the church—but the killing in the in that uh, South Carolina church um, by Dylan Roof. Um, again, I'm forgetting the name of the church, but I, I remember, you know, being on the balcony where we were and crying. Um, I think it, something about that moment really brought me back to my own upbringing in the church, and I, and I just remember thinking about my mother uh, and you know my my aunts and uncles could could have possibly been in a similar setting, right? So it wasn't just about myself being a black man, but being a, being a part of a black family whose uh, movement in the world is not so different than the people who would become, you know, victims of, of vigilante terror, for example, in, in, in South, Car South Carolina. But the real radicalizing thing for me in entering movement space wasn't simply about you know the experience of being black and what that made 
or what that makes Black people available for when it comes to state violence, it was really about the sense of being in collectivity, right, with other Black people. The, 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 the sense of, and that's, that's that kind of that empowerment piece that you're kind of referencing is like, oh, well, well, wait a minute, like, we can do something about this. We're not going to, we're not going to just stand for this. And in the process of trying to do something about this out there in the world, we were doing something for each other imperfectly, no doubt, but doing something for each other by sharing space, by, by, you know, uh, becoming a container in some ways for the grief folks were feeling about uh, what is a structural condition of black life in America and around the world, um, but also a uh, opportunity to engage in strategic and tactical thinking, an opportunity to engage in political education, an opportunity to sharpen our lenses and our analyses of what of the what, why, and how of of you know black subjection uh, and the things that we might be do we might be able to do to to bring black folks close, closer to liberation. Thank you so much for that. I'm just going to say the name of that church uh, is the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. And as you were talking about that, I'm going way off script now, but as you were talking about that, I mean, you do mention this in the book too, I think there was a similar similar visceral experience, right, when we saw our grandmothers, our grannies um, executed inside of that, um, the shopping market in Buffalo and a similar mm. radicalization, right, of, of folks because of that connection to, to not just being a Black person in this country, but our Black collective consciousness. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Chris, one of the themes, if you will, of the Black Lives Matter movement that emerged was that all Black lives matter, meaning Black queer lives and Black trans lives, lives that at best weren't lifted up in prior upsurgence of Black movements. And I'm going to talk, I'm going to get you to talk more about intergenerational differences in a bit. Um, But at worst, were ignored altogether, dismissed altogether. Um, I'd like you to talk just for a bit about the importance and impact of this framing of all Black lives on Black liberatory struggle. Where did it push us to get to? Yeah, yeah. It's an important contribution of black feminist praxis that in my estimation really couldn't could only have emerged in a way that it has you know right now uh, you know because of the influence of post 70s early 80s black feminist theorizing both in and outside of the academy and i think this is a really important point um especially when you think about BYP 100 in particular, um, Kathy Cohen, a um, very important uh, political scientist uh, at the University of Chicago, had a very big hand in, uh, a central hand in in convening the activists and organizers that would later form uh, BYP 100 and helping to shepherd BYP 100 in in its initial years, and you know Kathy Cohen, as a you know um, uh, a queer black woman, came out of that era of black feminist uh, thinking, theorizing, and organizing right in the seventies and eighties, and so that's that's why I say I think you, you know we can't 
really think this moment without paying homage to uh, that influence. But more broadly, what makes it important, I think, in shifting our frame is allowing us to understand that the Black experience is multimodal, right? Uh, And that's not just in terms of the different violences that are attached to the Black experience, for example, being able to understand that the life world of a, of a, of a Black trans uh, woman is going to be different in really substantive and material ways than a Black cis heterosexual man such as myself. And so that attunes us to a broader view of what must be done, right? So being able to see the world or attempt to understand the world through the prism of, say, a Black trans woman allows our critique, right, or allows our analysis to be that much fuller and richer, precisely because there are things within that experience that, say, again, a Black cis heterosexual man like myself cannot know and cannot experience. And this is a part of the idea, again, that we get from Black feminist praxis that if, if the those who are positioned furthest from power, those who are on the margins of the margins, if we lift those folks up, if they are liberated, then that would mean that everybody else would be liberated by a matter of course, because for them to actually be liter- liberated, for a Black trans woman to be liberated, that would mean that the structures of domination that all of us are subject to differently, of course, but all of us are subject, subject to, would need to crumble and in their stead, something that would actually honor the life worlds of, of all Black people, all Black life, uh, would, would have to, 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 to take its place. I think this is a central part of why the magnitude of uh, margins to center position at the center of movement rather than on the periphery has produced a broader, more encompassing politic and analysis. And that actually is going to segue me to some something that I was going to ask you later, but I think here is appropriate because I agree with everything you just said, and that was so critical. And as a Black organizer, one of the things that does still concern me about our current moment or the moment, you know, since 2009 to now is that the demographic that the Black Panther Party would have called the lump in, the most oppressed, the most marginalized, the most disenfranchised of us Black folks. And for for my Bay Area listeners, I'm, you know, I'm talking about Black folks that live in the bottoms or East Oakland are not accessing this current political moment or very engaged in shaping it. And as an academic, I'm wondering... And and you you sit at an interesting crossroads because you're an academic and you've also deeply submerged yourself in movement. Your thoughts about that and what, if anything, you think needs to shift? Wow, yeah, great, great question, <laughs> um, and and great and great point. I mean, obviously, not not obviously, perhaps, but but uh, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. Um, there are and have been and continue to be, as you say, class contradictions. Within the context of our movement, and one of the difficulties that I saw while participating in the in, in BYP 100 in New York City was this chasm between what some of us was would understand to be our base, right, um, which would be other 
18 to 35 year old black queer, you know, like that, that kind of, you know, younger generational demographic. So some people would claim that to be our base and then others, rightfully so, if we're an 18 to 35 year old organization, those are the people we might want to, you know, kind of really engage with. But at the, at the uh, risk, maybe risk is the wrong word, but while somehow not recognizing that actually our base ought to be everyday Black folks, no matter how old they are in the community. And I think there's a lot of struggle in figuring out how best to hold both those things, particularly the ability to go out and talk to Black folks who probably still believe in the police, right? Uh, or, you know, Black folks who don't appreciate the importance of a Black trans woman or, like, would be critical of that, right? Uh, and I'm not sure, to be completely honest with you, I'm not sure that we collectively, as an organization, I'm talking about BYP 100, um, in my experience of it, um, other organizations might be more or better embedded within communities to avoid some of this. Um, so in my time at BYP 100 in New York City, it was very, I'm not sure we ever over, overcame that, that problem. And the solution to that has to be a willingness to be in community with others and meet them where they are. I mean, we preach that as, as organizers, but that's, that's, that's easier said than done. Right. But there's no, there's no other way around it. We need to be able to be in community with our communities, meet them where they are and provide as best we can the resources that we have um, through political education and, and, you know, just having hard conversations with folks um, to get them to see that this collective struggle that, that we're all in requires a different outlook that they might, than they might be used to. And if you're a working mother with a family of three or four and you, you're struggling to get by, it's going to be harder for, for, for you to even make the space to receive that message. And people have to, you know, kind of understand that and, you know, be willing to, to put in the, the long hours that it's going to require to, to, actually, to actually reach folks. I deeply, deeply appreciate uh, that answer and your willingness to engage in that piece of the conversation because I worry that we're not doing it enough and to take the weight, you know, off of B1, BYP 100, right? It's all of us that are doing this work um, that need to attend to this. Um, you also, staying on sort of this, this class, um, class contradictions, if you will, uh, you mentioned the Occupy movement in your book, um, which took a very particular shape here in Oakland, right, with, with a really deliberate insertion of um, a Black-led and Indigenous-led analysis, as well as a focus on state violence. Where or if do you or did you see place for Black liberatory struggle in that movement? And um, what ways did you witness Black freedom fighters impact it? And how did that impact roll into the uprisings for Black life that followed? Yeah. So my engagement with, with Occupy was very peripheral. I had just moved to, to, to New York City when, when Occupy emerged. And so I to, to witness some of it while I was, you know, kind of getting my grounding in the city in general. 
but my impression, and you can't, you know, you have to take this from the position of someone who was kind of on the periphery of it, uh, was that it was a white dominated space, not the kind of black and indigenous led space that, that you seem to be referencing or that you're referencing in terms of Oakland, um, but people who were there in a more forceful or intentional way than, than, than I was can, can probably speak to this a little better. What I can say that is carried over from that moment which I suppose is carrying over from the emergence of the, the new left in the 60s and 70s is a kind of horizontalism, right? Is a desire to be um, not leaderless, but, but leaderful. Now, as I understand it, that was practiced in a really um, inadequate way uh, when it comes to we go to church today (laughs) (laughs) when it when it when it comes to occupy and i think you know slightly better so although still insufficiently when it comes to, to to movement work but i think the principle is really important um which is and i think a lot of people get this wrong to be uh, leaderful is to understand that everybody can be a leader, not that you don't need leaders, but that everybody can be. And that as an organization or, you know, as a, as a, as a broader movement ecosystem, the desire is to make room for and provide resources that would allow for anyone who wants to be a leader to be a leader. And that's what leaderful is as opposed to, you know, some kind of strict non-hierarchical thinking where there should be no leaders and therefore nothing gets done or decisions get made in a really uh, haphazard way. Uh, But I think the biggest thing about Occupy was both that horizontalism and then I think the the idea of occupation as direct action. Um, Not that that's invented by Occupy, right? But that's something that gets perhaps reintroduced into the lexicon of political struggle that definitely in the early days of of, of the movement for Black Lives, um, direct action, occupation w- were key parts of uh, the political performance of agitation, if that makes sense. It does. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Christopher Paul Harris, whose new book is To Build a Black Future, The Radical Politics of Joy, Pain, and Care. And Chris, you have me going all the way off script. Um, and I'm going to tug at this this other thread, uh, which may be a little uncomfortable, but that's okay. Um, this idea, right, of being leaderful, of horizontal leadership. When we get to a place where there must be accountability for decisions made, right? Where someone has to hold the ball uh, in response to the people's demand for accountability, transparency, explanation. Are there any places where you see horizontal leadership having impacted where we now see the state of the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, I'll try to take my politics out of this, which I don't do often, um, right? Into these two camps. You've got Black Lives Matter Global and Black Lives Matter Grassroots and fracture and fray across our movement. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the horizontal... <laughs> He's like, I signed up for this. <laughs> so hor- hor- the horizontal leadership is an aspiration uh, that, you know, has been compromised 
by the form in which our organizations take. So this was a criticism and has been a criticism from the beginning uh, or from my, the beginning of my involvement uh, when, say, BYP 100 was, you know, trying to become a nonprofit, it, you know, came nonprofit status. And there's a, uh, a debate, you know, there's a, a debate about whether we should do that and what doing that would mean for our politics. And so I think, not, not just I think, <laughs> I know that part of the reason why there has been so much fracture kind of paradoxically in the aftermath of, of 2020, of the uprisings in 2020, even though it had been building towards that for a long time, is precisely how people felt that being subsumed within the nonprofit industrial complex made it easier to subvert some of the radical principles that brought people to the organization to begin with. And a lot of that has to do with accountability. A lot of that has to do with decision-making processes that are non-inclusive. Uh, a lot of that has to, has to do with strategies, like how to engage in elections or the degree to which we're engaging in elections. Um, so there's a lot of failure there but I don't think that it's a failure that we can't draw important lessons from. And again, this isn't about individuals. We could talk about individuals if we want to, but this is about a structure. This is about a structure. This is about the pursuit of liberatory goals through state-recognized means that provide access to resources, right? And, and you know, like allow you to actually do work. And then, you, but you have to ask yourself what what gets compromised right in the process and i think for a lot of folks just too much had been compromised um and again this is like avoiding getting into specific cases and specific people and organizations yeah, yeah, yeah. but just saying that you know one of the things that i'm interested in seeing uh as we move perhaps into you know a post black lives matter conjuncture or whatever is coming next um, is the types of organizational formations that arise in light of the kind of failures that we saw by virtue of colluding with the state? Now, um, and colluding might sound like a strong word, and I, you know, I don't, I don't. I, well, maybe I do mean it's in, 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 with, with that degree of, of strength, but um, because if you look back at you know any kind of revolutionary struggle that had a modicum of success, it required independent autonomous organizations and once you become a nonprofit, you are no longer truly independent or autonomous right you're playing by state rules you have to you have to you have to play their game to a certain set, a set, uh, extent and then you have to have an organizational structure that also fits that paradigm so again it's not a direct criticism on people who have pursued that route it's important that work is important but i do wonder what alternative organizational formations, as I said, might arise in light of what we've seen, which might include a more, you know, democratic horizontal ethos while still recognizing that a democratic horizontal ethos does not mean that you are absent any hierarchy altogether. People still have to take decisions. People still have to implement those decisions. Sometimes you can't just go to the whole group. 
for those things, but there's a way to be empowered by the group to make those decisions in ways that leadership in a lot of our movement organizations just were not by virtue of not really keeping their ear to the constituent ground, if that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. If we have time, we may go back to tug a little bit more on those threads, but I want to talk about um, intergenerational movement stuff. Uh, so here in Oakland, similar to what we saw in Ferguson, you know, we're seeing backlash from older black institutions and older black folks that are calling for law and order and an increase in policing as a response to our current conditions. And by current conditions, I mean um, the result of the economic pandemic that came hot on the heels of the coronavirus pandemic, right? And we saw thousands of us funneled into the underground economy. Um, specifically here in Oakland, we've got the NAACP blaming a defund that never happened, um, using Black Lives Matter slogans to fight to reinstate corrupt police officers, and aligning themselves with right-wing politics to build political power. I'm wondering if you can talk about intergenerational conflict in Black movement space and how we address it without, and I'm struggling with this myself as an organizer, doing the job of white supremacy for itself. For instance, um, Ferguson activists, many of whom I know and love, and I've had this conversation with them, had this slogan, right? This isn't your grandparents' civil rights movement, which while I got what they were saying, some of our grandparents were also beaten and hosed and jailed, et cetera. Um, Balance, balance in having the hard conversation with some of our older folks and not alienating not just them, but perhaps others. Yeah, yeah, great. It's it's a, it's a very difficult issue on on a number of levels, uh, but I want to start with that by saying, black movement is always already intergenerational, and by that I mean that we're always looking to the past to understand, to take lessons, especially in this movement. I mean, maybe maybe it was different in in other iterations of the of the black liberation struggle, but. There was never not a time uh, when I was in BYP 100 that we weren't thinking about our elders and trying to learn from them. Uh, and I think that's key because as, as I mentioned in the book, uh, the movement is, and black movement in general, is always a, a dual conversation, one out into the world and one with each other. And so that's why you know, I want to insist that it is, it is always already an intergenerational conversation. Now, what is the nature of that conversation where things become more tricky? Uh, I think there's substance to the frame that this isn't your grandmother's or grandparents' civil rights movement for a lot of reasons. One of those reasons being the pro- political horizon, right? People today are talking about abolition and thinking abolition, not just about the end of the carceral state, but of, you know, the you know, Western institutions as such, liberalism, capitalism, right? So substantively, it is not <laughs> the same movement, but that doesn't mean that there aren't lessons, aren't lessons to be learned. And I think those lessons go both ways. So, so often, oftentimes, the onus gets put on on younger folks or a younger generation to be deferential or to you know trust or respect the leadership of 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 our elders when the fact is sometimes we just don't and we shouldn't 
And they, that's a dual dialogue here where they need to understand, well, why are people rejecting the NAACP, right? There are good reasons for that. Why are people re- rejecting the black political class that, you know, emerged in the 60s and 70s and I guess perhaps reached its zenith with, with Barack Obama's presidency? And yet during Barack Obama's presidency is when the Black Lives Matter movement emerges, right? So these tensions and contradictions, often along the lines of class, but also along the lines of, of, of age and, and the expected deference that young people, black young people in particular, you know, grow up, grow up black. There is a, uh, especially in a church context, there is a, there is a way that you are taught to be deferential. You know, I was I was I was in the St. Louis the other day. This is going to sound tangential, but I, I promise it'll be. Uh, I'll bring it back. I was in tangential uh, in um, in St. Louis, uh, giving a talk um, at a university there, and this very 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 lovely administrator, black um, black department administrator, was so great and reminded me of 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 my aunt so, or, or whatnot, and she referred to herself, and we referred, of course, to her. Um, uh, as as Miss Dana, right? Mm. You know, I'm 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 in my I'm in my thirties, right? Or uh, well, not, no, I'm almost forty. I am forty, I guess. <laughs> Lose track of this. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, <laughs> like a little slippage there. But you know, and I'm still, you know, we we refer to her as Miss Dana, and that's like to me, that's a very black thing, right? Like a very and 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 suggestive of mm-hmm. you know the kind of ingrained so so you know kind of socialized. Um, respect and deference, and I think that's appropriate to to, to some extent, um, especially with someone like Miss Dana. At the risk of compromising our politics, right? So there 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 is a moment where we need to insist that the black political class, the you know black elites financially, you know upper middle class wealthy blacks, need to do more listening than lecturing, right? Um, they they need to to, to do more um, struggle more with themselves to understand the transformations that have taken place in Black politics since they came to their political consciousness, since they came to their political offices, since they formed their organizations. Right? I think if we do that, I think if we do if if we if they do that, then it'll then then it'll be a lot easier for us to engage in a very necessary intergenerational uh, conversation and mobilizing and organizing, right? Because that's what we need, right? We, we, we ultimately need that. It can't just be young folks or quasi-young folks like myself, right? <laughs> um, we, we need to be hand in hand on this and that means we gotta go, it has to go both ways. Um, that was a long-winded response, but I, but I hope I'm, I'm getting at some of the some of the questions you're 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 putting forth with that. You absolutely are, and I'm I'm really gigging uh, on our on our conversation. And I'll just say this, and I'll move on. It's also why you know political education is so important. So here in Oakland, one of the things that I've you know been trying to gently remind folks that are like, how could, you know, the NAACP do such a thing and reminding them that their praxis, right, has always been proximity to power in order to affect change. So actually, this current apple is not falling all that far from the proverbial tree. 
Staying a little bit on this line of thinking, we are barreling towards a 2024 presidential and down ticket election cycle with a black populace that is largely disappointed in the Democratic Party, a party that could not even pass any meaningful legislation to interrupt state violence despite bright tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets, backslid on defund promises and failed to protect black voting rights. That is now going to ask us again for our support come November. And I, I don't want to leave Palestine out of this and black solidarity with Palestine, right? And, and large swaths of black folks saying no to genocide. From where you sit, what should our engagement with electoral politics be in this moment as we get towards November and we see what the possible alternative, alternatives excuse me, are? Where do you see openings? Where are you concerned? Yeah, you know, my, my position on this um, is, I think, a pretty simple and straightforward one. Um, there is no reason for us to believe in Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. They are, you know, a, a, the other side of the same coin that the Republican Party is, which is invested in capitalism and in a liberalism that um, is in no way about collective and social well-being, right? So we shouldn't invest in that as, a, as, as an end. At the same time, legislation that pass, passes on the, on, uh, on the federal level, but especially on, on, on the local level, has material effects in people's lives, right? Not only that, for most people, when they think about politics and the political, what are they thinking? Election. Democratic Party or Republican Party or whatever. And so that goes back to this, the sense of meeting people where they're at. In other words, we can't abandon the fact that, the material objective fact that the majority of people in this country and I imagine around the world are psychologically invested in the political system as it is. Mm. So we have to engage that reality. If we don't, we're ceding ground to all of the people who themselves are invested in it and trying to manipulate it, right? So I guess what I'm trying to say is that we need to, we need to, to maintain a both-and strategy. We have to engage in elections, as I said, because that's where people engage. The majority of people engage, and there are material impacts. At the same time, we have to make it clear, one way or the other, that the political system as such cannot be an end. Voting cannot be an end. We need to do our best to hold the people who actually get in, in, in office accountable, but we need to be mobilizing towards something outside of that, right? Something that, or a vehicle that allows people to see the insufficiency, not just in, say, the Electoral College, but in the presidency as such, in the Supreme mm. Court as such, in Congress as such. So we don't just want tweaks to those things to allow more people who look like us opportunities to be a part of it, right? No, what we want is something different altogether. This is the nature of abolition, right? At least as I understand it, that, that, that it is a desire and an urgent need for something else. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Palestine, thinking about the presidency, for example, how is it that Joe, Joe Biden gets to decide in our name that we're just going to support Israel, right? They haven't even passed legislation about that yet. But yet we're arming Israel, right? Yet we're doing all these things. I mean, I say we, and it's kind of a perverse way to say that, but, but you know, 
that doesn't make any sense or it shouldn't make sense to people right and it's not just here it's everywhere across the 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 uh, the, the world where where leaders have embraced the state of israel i want to like you know be very clear with that language in, embrace the state of israel's um uh sided right to uh defend themselves which takes the form of of gleeful i'd say gleeful genocidal violence right and obviously the american people or the the the, the people here and say in the UK and, and you know in a lot of other places don't want that. So uh, that that might be like a little tangential, but the point I'm trying to make there is that it should be clear because of the because of what's going on in Palestine, the nature of the contradictions that we face, which is that there's a political class and political institutions that actually don't care about what people want. And are invested only in maintaining their class interests and, and then what they imagine the US's interests are, which is also a class interest, right? Um, so the, to the degree that we can make people, like maybe we, we're in a moment or not have an opportunity to, to make that clear for people, not so they can become nihilistic and disengage from the political system altogether, but recognize that, that the elections are one tactic in a larger strategy that should be pursuing the creation of something altogether different. And that's one of those tough conversations that we have to have with our elders or even with young people who are, in, who for good reason in terms of, you know, how we're socialized are, are really invested in these institutions. So this is what I think about the 2024 um, uh, elections. <laughs> I, I think that there. I think that we have to. Um, there are those who will take on the role of participating in that and galvanizing and mobilizing around that, and that is not unimportant. That that matters because that's where people are. But we also need to mobilize and galvanize people under the understanding that we do not live in a in, in a democracy. That our institutions do not serve us, and if we want to be served, our civic duty is to seek to destroy those institutions and create new ones. Ooh, to church again. You all are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Christopher Paul Harris, whose book is called To Build a Black Future, The Radical Politics of Joy, Pain, and Care. And, and Chris, you've like made me segue to all of these other places with your answers, and I'm watching the clock tick down. So I want to get to um, a couple last things with you. Chapter three, uh, regarding black pain. You use this word that X I have not seen um, or heard, I don't think, in relationship to the experience or perception uh, or normalization of Black pain in this country, and that was naturalization. The naturalization of Black pain in America as if it's normal. Inside of that context, what purpose then does the constant onslaught of what I call nigger porn Black bodies being modern-day lynched in this country on every possible social platform serve, if at all, and for whom, towards Black liberatory struggle. Yeah, yeah. So I think there, there are a couple of layers to that. Um, mm -hmm. One of those layers is for us, for, for Black people, right? Um, and that layer is to recognize by virtue of 
the hypervisibility and viral nature of, of Black Death that you know gives us a, a, a slightly different encounter with it than in the past. It's not something new, but it's a different kind of encounter. And you know that encounter is why I use the word regard in, 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 in the book uh, should push us to give careful attention to the fact of black abjection. Careful attention to the fact of black abjection should lead us to understand that the law is not a recourse to black liberation. Come on now. That that's what people that's what people thought in the past. And you know, the good reason for them to think that we know better now. Because it's you know it's 2023. We know better now. We know better than they could have known then. Some people knew it then, but not everyone, right? Now, we've, it, it's been proven to us that the law is not a recourse for Black liberation. That's why abolition is a politics now. That's why abolition, to me, is the you know revolutionary paradigm of the 21st century, precisely because it understands or it names an understanding that the strategies that have been pursued in the past have not done anything to dent the specter of Black death. Right. Um, that, that, that black people need to understand that first and foremost, but the same level of regard needs to, to take place for others, for them to understand the way the law and the way that our institutions don't just harm black people, but all people. Uh, I love one of my, in, in this, in this regard, I love um, Valerie Castile's quote in a press conference um after Philando Castillo's murder and after after and after the uh, uh, acquittal of of, of of the police officer responsible for it, um, she she said, uh, "I'm paraphrasing now because I don't remember the, the exact quote." And I, uh, something to the extent that this city, my son loved this city, and this city killed my son, and she followed up that by saying. And it's going to kill all of you too. Mm. Now, what 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 does she mean there, right? She knows she's not just talking to black people there. She's talking to everyone. She's That's telling right. us. She's rendering a structural analysis that yes, killed her son. The city killed her son, a city that her son loved. But it's going to do the same thing to all of you one way or the other, eventually, because that's what, it, that's what its intention is. It's not, it's, the intention isn't for the collective or the social, right? It's, it's, it's about protecting the interests of capital. And to the extent one is, one is willing to, you know, go along with that, you might survive for a while. But just think about, you know, the coming climate catastrophe, right? We're, 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 we're uh, wheelbarrowing to, to all kinds of disaster. And it's a structural problem. So to bring it back to, 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 to black bodies in pain, right? Um, if we understand that and see that as structural, it ought to lend itself to a particular kind of regard that itself lends itself to a particular kind of political analysis, which itself should lead us to a way of organizing and bringing people into the loop of an abolitionist paradigm that not only says that we need to get rid of these harmful institutions, the police, prisons, the state, the military, right? You know, we can go on and on, but, but also say, hey, hey, wait a minute. Like, 
how how cool is it that we actually get to decide what we want, right? We get to decide what our institutions look like. We get to do that together. You know, and, and that's why I keep returning to this idea of the collective and the social, which isn't emphasized in, 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 in this country or really anywhere, but that we can reintroduce through an abolitionist paradigm that says, hey, this is what we can, we, we can build something together. I know that you're not satisfied with your life, how it is. You know, like even if you're rich, you're alienated in some way. We don't have to live that way. So there's a call that begins with the, the black body and pain that extends to my mind, to a larger structural critique that is both an urgent, that is uh, representative of both the urgent necessity to undo, but the, but the creative capacity to make. Okay. And that leads me into, I, I know my producer's like, this has got to be your last question. Um, but we spend so much time on this show, just sitting in Black pain. I want to just end with you talking about Black joy. Chapter four, A Joy for Rebellion. I was at a, a beautiful protest the other day. It was beautiful. Uh, not called for by Black folks. And in, in, in a debrief, one of my Black comrades said, you know what I missed in that moment? It was the first non-Black protest they'd been to in quite some time. What I missed in that moment was the joy of Black resistance. And I'm wondering if you can reflect on that statement and place the concept and necessity of Black joy inside of both the Black radical tradition and also what we are seeing inside of our movement now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll always remember um, a quote from, from a fellow organizer when, when we were you know, putting together um, the strategic plan um, for, for BYP 100 a couple of years ago. And they said, you know, without joy, we won't win. Mm. Uh, and and I think that that's such an important sentiment, and it's important for a couple of different reasons. One, joy helps us not simply be weighed down by pain and anger. Right? It's a different recourse. It's the recognition that Black life is lived and thrives despite pain, right? Um, but it's not just a counterweight. I mean, you know, it has always been a prefigurative politics, right? You know, whether you're talking about the, um, uh, you know, kind of the illicit parties on the plantation that the, that the uh, historian uh, Ste- uh, Stephanie Camp talks about, or uh, whether, or, or, you know, singing and dancing in the streets during the 2020 uprisings, right? They're a way of inviting people to a future that's yet to come, right? But that's simultaneously lived in the here and now. And that's what makes it a prefigurative politics. The world on the other side of abolition is one of joy, not of pain. It's one where we care about the collective, about the social, which allows us to see the beauty and the, and the political power of joy, of culture, the politics of culture connected to joy, dance, singing, movement, right? The, the, there is no way that a revolutionary politics can sustain itself without that kernel, right? That, that, that kernel that gives you a vision of what could be on the other side of the struggle that you can have as an embodied practice right now. And, you know, I, I just don't see how, how, how you get people to want to actually like sit the long hours of organizing and, you know, or you know, planning actions or even in the march 
without recognizing, celebrating, and and uh, you know promoting joy as part of a revolutionary politics. And the last thing I'll say about it as well, and I think this is important and kind of brings us back to the, the centering the uh, historically marginalized of people on the margins of the margins. Joy is also a, re- a way of recognizing, uh, to paraphrase Christina Sharp, the, the largeness that is Black life. If you attend to joy, if you open yourself up to, to Black joy as Black life, right? And how Black life is lived despite death and pain, then you recognize that joy is the manifestation of that black, that vast expanse that is Blackness. You begin to open yourself up and make yourself available to celebrate the Black experience writ large, not just the respectable ones, but the ratchet ones. Um, not not mm. just the cis heterosexual ones, but the, but, but the queer and trans ones, right? Their joy is our collective joy, just as much as their liberation is our collective liberation. Y'all have been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today has been Christopher Paul Harris, an assistant professor of global and international studies at the University of California, Irvine. His new book is To Build a Black Future, The Radical Politics of Joy, Pain, and Care. And Christopher, I hope you understand that you are now in the Law and Disorder Rolodex. You will be back. And thank you so much for this amazing conversation. Uh, Yeah, I can't wait. It's been great to talk to you again. I'm down to talk anytime. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.